Reach around and grab your swords. The Word. Sharp. Able to discern between joint and marrow and soul and spirit. Amen? It is living and it is powerful. You know, sometimes I think that we read the Bible like a book. And I pray that you don't do that. Because it's not a book. It is God's word to mankind. It's the authority on all things that lead unto godliness and contentment. It is the way of life. And it is not like any other book of man's writing. Because it didn't come from man, it came from God. And so as we turn our attention this morning to the 20th verse of the 17th chapter here in Luke's Gospel, a study that I've entitled, The Coming Kingdom. Verse 20, it says, And now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, That is the question that many ask today. That is the place that many people find themselves. What is this kingdom of God thing all about? What constitutes a relationship with God? What can we know about Him? What has He told us about Himself? And there are all manner of answers to that question. Jesus Himself then answers by saying, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. It's not just something you learn. And it certainly isn't from this word observation, which means to look upon with scorn. To see from a negative perspective. To find fault. To look and see what's wrong. You see, much of the world is looking to see what's wrong with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nor will they say, see here, or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. For all those Jesus-only folks, our president being one of them, who himself professes that, I only believe in the words of Jesus, I don't like the writings of the Apostle Paul, not sure that they're actually from God. For all those Jesus-only folks, the passage that we're in this morning is Jesus-only. The passage that we read this morning lays waste to those that claim there is some other way. Jesus alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. This question that is before us this morning is still asked by the world today. Where's your kingdom? Hey, look at the church. What a mess. And to some degree, I would say amen. The church is a mess in many ways. Much of the church no longer preaches and teaches about Jesus the Christ. It's a social gospel. It's what can you do for me today. And though the church is supposed to be concerned about widows and orphans and poor, it is predominantly to care about the lost that they might be found. It is to go into the world and make disciples. You see, because if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Hindu, you believe that Jesus was a holy man, that he was good. If you're a Muslim, you believe he was a prophet. If you're a Mormon, you believe he was one of God's many sons, physical sons, born to Elohim. 
If you're a Christian scientist, you believe that he is the Christ ideal. That you could kind of look at the things that he said and you get a picture of how God acts in this world. Jesus did not say that about himself. So you can either trust the words of Jesus, or you can trust the writings of man. This morning we'll trust the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we set aside the thoughts of our minds. Lord, the things that may have been put there through years of listening to the lie. And we pray that you would teach us about your coming kingdom. Lord, we ask that you would instruct us from heaven by the power of your words, Jesus. You spoke these things. They're attributed to you. And so, God, we ask that you'd use them to speak to us this morning. Bless us as we study your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so, Luke the author of this book in a human sense, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, gives us a continuing picture. Remember, the Lord Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's teaching as he goes. And there are all kinds of attitudes and theories about who he is and what he's doing, why he came, and the whole purpose for him being on this earth. And they were varied, and they were many. And those theories remain to this day. And so I ask you this morning, what do you believe about the coming kingdom? What do you believe about Jesus? Because the answer to that question will determine where you spend eternity. The answer to that question alone is the one question you must answer before you leave this earth. Because you don't get the answer after you leave. You will have made your decision. And so Jesus begins to speak to the Pharisees. And now I would remind you that the Pharisees had the right to ask this question insofar as they were concerned. They were the religious rulers of the day. They were also the only monotheistic religion on the face of the earth. They believed in one God. And that one God, they believed, would send a deliverer, a messiah. And so Jesus becomes the full forefront of that thought. And here's what they believed about the coming Messiah. They believed that he would be like Moses. And Moses was this tremendous leader who led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. The book of Exodus tells us that. Amen. They wandered then in the wilderness. They got to Kadesh Barnea. And rather than enter into their inheritance in the promised land, they did not believe God that God would deliver them. So they spent 40 years wandering around out in the middle of nowhere. Only to come back to that same place with 12 people. Ten of them went and spied out the land and came back and said, There's giants. We don't want to go there. And two, Joshua and Caleb said, Let's go in and possess it because God said so. The book of Joshua, which we're in on Wednesday nights, tells the story of that conquest. But as far as they were concerned, the Jews were concerned, there was going to come another prophet like Moses, a great leader, an authoritarian figure, a king. In fact, they believed the Messiah would be actually a military ruler who would defeat the Romans and put the Jewish people back in what they believed was their proper place, which is the rulers of the earth. That wasn't what Jesus came to do. And so he says to them, look, it's not what you think. Not a visible kingdom. It's in here. It's in your heart. And so he says to them, doesn't come with observation. Doesn't come with hostile watching. You know, sometimes we have people that come to this church and they do this very thing. It's with hostile watching. Oh, you know, Jeff, he doesn't even wear a suit. 
Huh, coffee cups in the sanctuary. I mean, <gasps> blasphemy. They watch with hostile reason to disbelieve. They're looking for the faults of the church. Can I say to you, if you're looking for the faults of this church or any other church, you're going to find them. We got them. Just save yourself time. Come to my, I'll tell you what our faults are, at least as many as I can think of that day. We have faults. We don't do everything perfect. We're not an exact representation of the holiness of God at times. I myself personally blow it occasionally. No big thing. Not going out smoking dope, getting drunk, or running around. But every once in a while I'll say something I probably shouldn't say. I'll act in some way that you could probably attribute that to just my flesh and nothing else. But in Jesus' name, don't look to me. Look to Him. Now I pray I don't do anything to dissuade people from believing in Jesus. And I want my life to be as exact a representation of Him as I can possibly get. As close to perfect as I can possibly be. That's exactly what I'm supposed to be. And that is exactly what I want to be. But you can look with hostile observation and try and find fault if you want. The old adage goes, if you find a perfect church, don't go there, you'll ruin it. <laughs> That's us, isn't it? I don't know about you guys, i got a couple faults. As D.L. Moody said, if you're looking at a church for perfection, it's like looking at the Mona Lisa with warts. Amen? Can you imagine if Mona Lisa had like warts all over? Yeah, that's kind of how we are. We're kind of basically good, but we got some warts. Mark's, Mark's gospel. Luke has already told us, and he will tell us again in chapter 20, that they were always watching Jesus. They were looking to see what's up with this guy. Now I want to tell you something. They were looking in the wrong place because they should have been looking here. Not here. They should have been looking inward and not outward. And that is the problem with most people in their relationship with God. They're quick to find fault in the human agents of Christianity. It's easy to do. All you got to do is look around at people. You'll find fault. It's not a hard thing to do. But they had the wrong heart attitude. Because they weren't looking for the real Jesus. They were looking for something that pleased them. And as you've heard me say many times, if you came here to have me tell you how wonderful you are, you came to the wrong church. Now, hopefully I won't unduly offend anyone. But I can tell you this, my job is not to make you feel good. My job is to preach the truth. My job is to recount to you the Word of God, what it says, and do the very best I can at making it so you can discern it and understand it. Not to change what it says so it makes you feel good about what you think. Now, most of the time, we're going to probably agree. Every once in a while, we may all get afflicted. I get afflicted every once in a while when I read. It's like, Lord, why would you have to say that? I'm not big on loving my enemies sometimes. I really don't like doing good to those who persecute me. Sometimes I don't like to forgive. Anybody else not like to forgive every once in a while? Yeah, you can probably get some hands to go up on that one. Being kind, being gentle. I'm more of a, you know, let's take some names kind of guy. Let's figure out who's right and who's wrong, and it's going to be me that's right, it's going to be you that's wrong. That's kind of how my brain works sometimes. You see, if you want to find fault, you can always find fault. It's easy. Easy to do. Greatest pastors on earth. I've heard Billy Graham say some things, I just shake my head. It's like, What? Do I know that he loves the Lord? 
Absolutely. Do I know he's going to heaven? Absolutely. Do I know he's caused and been used of the Lord to bring millions to a place of faith? Absolutely. But is he perfect? Not on your life. Still a man. Pastor Chuck, same thing was true of him. Wonderful that God used him. But we look to Jesus. In some ways, the Lord is actually kind of agreeing with them. They're saying, look, see here, see there. And he's kind of saying, you know what? The kingdom of God is within you. The whole gospel of John becomes our focus. And really, when you look at what John's gospel says, you remember what Jesus said there in the third verse. Jesus answered, remember who it is he's talking to, Nicodemus, another Pharisee, by the way, but an inquiring mind who wanted to know. Amen? And we're not talking about the National Enquirer. An inquiring mind who wanted to know. What must I do? How can I be born again? Jesus said to him, he said, Most assuredly I say to you that unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All the religion in the world cannot save you apart from Christ. All of the good works in the world cannot save you apart from Christ. All of the biblical knowledge in the world cannot save you apart from Christ. It's not observed. It's not intellectual. It's by faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so Jesus Himself is saying, look, guys, you need to understand this. You need to get this, this proposed kingdom. You want me to go destroy the Roman army. You want me to kick Pilate out of the Antonio Fortress. You want me to take over Jerusalem, kick everybody who isn't a Jew out, and set you guys up because you think you have a corner on the truth when, in fact, the truth is supposed to be in you. It's a hard issue. It's a faith issue. It is a issue of belief. And so he then kind of turns the tables on them. And as we continue the rest of this passage this morning, he's going to tell them about the coming kingdom. And he's going to move it all the way out into the very distant future. And the reason he does this is he's doing away with the false assumption that it was going to be right then, right there, and right now. Because many of the things that we see in Scripture were fulfilled in that day. By A.D. 70, there would be no temple on the Temple Mount. Roman Emperor Titus, who would be the emperor, was a general at the time, destroys Jerusalem pushes the temple mount, uh, all the stones of it, the stones of the temple, into the Kidron Valley, off into the city of David, and there they remain to this day. You can go visit those stones. They're there. So he begins to address the disciples next. And as he does so, he talks to them about a day of visitation. And he's going to give them three very important points about that day. First and foremost, that there will be a rejection of him. And as we look at the remaining time that we'll spend together, I want to just ask you a question. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about him? What do you believe about what he said? Because these are his words. They're not mine. They weren't made up by man. They're attributed to Christ. They're recorded in, in some way, shape, or form, all four Gospels. Jesus spoke these things to the disciples. Now, you would think the disciples, because remember, they've traveled around with Jesus for three and a half years, roughly. If anyone would know what Jesus was about, it would be the disciples. Amen? I mean, I don't know about you, but if you want to know what I'm about, follow me around all day, every day. Amen? You're going to find it's not good. 
No, I'm just kidding. But you find out what someone's about. You know the very important things to them by the way they speak, by the way they conduct themselves, and especially the things that they repeat over and over and over and over and over again. You know that I'm a Charger fan. You know that if you've got a Denver Broncos hat on this morning, you're in sin. No, we learn about people by being around them. Amen? You hear things. You watch them. They repeat stuff constantly. Things will come into their life and it will be passed along to you because they'll be about those things. You all know I love to fish. You also know that I love Jesus. You also know that I love His Word. You also know that I try as best I can to live by what's in this book. You see, you'll know that because you follow me around. You'll hear me speak about Jesus pretty much all day, every day. Some way, shape, or form. You'll watch me pray over every meal, every decision. You would have gotten up with me this morning at 4 to study. You would know what I'm about. The disciples were with Jesus all day, every day, for three and a half years. They knew what he was about, and yet they were dumb as hot rocks in some ways. Amen? It's like, how could you miss that? How did you get to the place to where you didn't know what it was he was getting at, and he's now going to tell them, guess what? You kind of don't know what I'm thinking, don't know what I'm saying. You didn't quite get it. Verse 22, this first little chunk, the rejection, if you will. There will be a mention of the return and a mention of the rapture. And so first, the rejection. And then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will not desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will desire it, but you will not see it. So he's saying, look. You're, you're going to want to see more of me. You're going to want to know what this day of the Lord is about. You're going to want to see my kingdom come, but you guys are not going to get to experience it. There was a good reason for that, because they were going to be in heaven with him. And they will say, other people will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go after them. Do not follow them. You see, there there was then, there is now, an awful lot of false messiahs and false Christs and false religions. Look here, we got a new Jesus. Our president believes in a different Jesus. And I hate to say that, but it's true, he does. Because he doesn't believe in the Jesus that hates the death of innocent unborn children. He doesn't believe in the Jesus that we're going to see next. He believes in a different Jesus. And the Jesus he talks about isn't one who hates sin. Just a nice, fluffy Jesus. There's a tough part of Jesus. The one that preached on hell. The one that said, you have to be born again. The one that said, you can't go to heaven apart from me. That's not a fluffy Jesus. That's a very exclusive Jesus. That's not an all-inclusive Jesus. That's not a tolerant Jesus. Jesus may have been one of the most intolerant persons who ever walked the face of the earth. Because he said, narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there are who find it. He said, one day I'm going to divide sheep and goats. He said, he said, you are either for me or you are against me. Do you get the picture? That's not a fluffy Jesus. It's not all roads lead to heaven. It's one way, one truth, one life, and it was him. Jesus said, it's my way or the highway. I didn't say that. He did. And so he says, don't go after him. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in His day. Why is He speaking this way? 
because it's future tense. He wasn't talking about next week. He wasn't talking about next month. He's talking about when he returns. He's saying, guys, this is not the end of all of this stuff. I've got some additional plans. And if you go wandering off on some other tangent somewhere, you're going to miss what I have to say. And he begins to talk about it. And he says about himself, verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he talks about a future generation. He talks about that generation. You can enlighten yourself additionally if you read Matthew's chapters 23 and 24. He pronounces a series of woes in chapter 23. He then goes on to talk about a different generation, a generation that would be alive when Ezekiel's prophecy there in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones would come about, when the nation Israel would be regathered back together into the land and they would once again speak one language. Jesus talked about that. That didn't happen until May 14, 1948. When Israel, after 2,000 years of being scattered all over the globe, came back into their own land that was conquered by Joshua, by the way, given to the Jewish people, and then dispersed into all kinds of different countries, it wasn't until that day that Jesus was referring in Matthew chapter 24. From that day forward, he spoke of a generation that was alive. He spoke of a generation to come. So God's had a plan for the last couple thousand years. That first generation that Jesus speaks about, they would indeed see the destruction of the temple. It would happen. It would happen in their lifetime. And there will be a generation that will see that temple rebuilt. A generation that will see the rise of the Antichrist. A generation that will be alive when the trumpet of the Lord sounds. But first, they would reject him. You see, what he was really saying is, guys, we need to look a little bit forward. To sometimes that maybe you don't want to think are going to ever come to pass. There are a lot of people, when you ask them, well, what do you believe about the Bible? And they say, well, I don't like all that end time stuff. I don't like all that talk about, you know, maybe the world is going to go through World War III. I don't like all, you know, that whole book of Revelation, it's kind of, it's kind of morose. It, it kind of has a little bit of a negative, I mean, good grief from chapter 6 to chapter, you've read that? Death and this guy died and those people died and these people were destroyed. God's not kidding It's part of the plan. Jesus believed it was part of the plan. He said it would happen. He said that there would be wars, rumors of wars, earthquake, famine, destruction, signs in the sky. Jesus said that. That was not just John riding in a cave on the island of Patmos. That was Jesus. And so the Lord begins to instruct them. He says, there's going to be a rejection of me. Was not Jesus Christ rejected by the very people that were listening? As Jesus goes to the final stage of his trial in Pilate's court, what did the Jews say? We do not want this man ruling over us. Give us Barabbas, the murderer. They rejected him. I said, forget it. We don't. This guy? Are you kidding me? You let Pilate try him illegally and then beat him into submission, and now they're going to. That's not our king. Our king's going to come and take down Rome. Can I tell you something? On that point, they were right, they were wrong about the time. He is going to take down Rome. He is going to take down sin. He is coming back as the conquering king. The stuff that you see going on in our world isn't going to go on forever. 
And so notice how the Lord's return comes into view, picking up in verse 26. He passes over 2,000 years of human history. I believe that Jesus was looking forward to the day and times that you and I currently reside in. And I know that that's an impopular view. I know that there are people that don't want to hear this. Maybe you got your wedding planned. Maybe you got some vacation or whatever. But I'm telling you, your Bible says there's going to come a day and time when the trumpet is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise. And we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air, for thus says the Lord. That's his promise. And so Jesus, the weak, the meek, the humble Jesus, says... And as it was in the days of Noah. Anybody remember what it was like in the days of Noah? It was so bad, exactly eight people survived the flood. That God himself said about the people before the flood, their hearts were continually evil. That's not a good thing. So it will also be in the days of of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, he, his three sons, their wives. Until they entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Evidence, family of God all over the world, that there has been a global cataclysm that we know is the flood. It exists on every continent. It's irrefutable. It's there. Travel around, it's not hard to see. And likewise, it also was in the days of Lot. So he has one story before the flood, one story after the flood. Guess what? Doesn't get any better. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. This is the meek, the weak, the humble Jesus. And he's saying, look, y'all better get your head screwed on straight. You better listen up. Because my father ain't playing. Yes, that's the Jeff Gill nearly inspired version, but that's what he's getting at. He's saying, look, it happened before, it's going to happen again. I've always been concerned with how my kids conduct themselves. I've never let them get too far out of whack. And even so, it will be in the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Hear that part. As it was in the days of Noah, and as it was in the days of Lot. Anybody remember what happened at those two periods of time? Was that good in any way, shape, or form? Was that God going, well, come on, just, you know, I mean, couldn't you just stop fornicating for a week? Couldn't you maybe just give up, you know, just don't get quite so stoned. Maybe cut back a little bit. No, God said, enough is enough. So as it was in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, so it shall also be when the Son of Man is revealed. And that word revealed there is apocalypsis. The unveiling. Same word from which we derive the word revelation. For in that day, he who was on the housetop, And his goods are in the house. Let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Now, people don't like this passage. It's Jesus, not Jeff. He mentions the days of Noah, two climatic periods. Uh, of ancient history. He mentions before the flood. 
He says, takes you back to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 6. He mentions after the flood, Genesis chapter 19. And we have this picture of a radical, materialistic, godless, God-forgetting, God-hating society. And I would say to you that we are very rapidly heading that direction in our world today. I'm stunned. I'm taken aback. I've shared with you, you don't have TV, praise God. But if you have TV, you better be careful what you watch. There's some new show, the the Pineapple Dance Studio. I just saw it advertised for the first time a couple days ago. It is about a flamboyant gay guy and how he just flaunts his, you know, I am a woman, though I'm a man. God's not okay with that. In the beginning, he created them male and female, and he said it is good. Men are supposed to be men, and women are supposed to be women. And the story of Genesis chapter 19 is really the story of Romans chapter 1. It's not a good thing where we are right now. It is not a good thing that very likely within the next six months the Supreme Court will decide for all of us that it is okay for two men to marry each other or two women. You see, God's not okay with that. Does he hate people who are caught in that sin? Absolutely not. Should we hate people who are caught? Absolutely not. No more than we should hate someone who's a constant drunk or a drug addict or Views porn. We should love people, period. But love sin? Never. It's never boded well for mankind when man has said, look, we want what we want. We don't care what you said, God. It's never gone good. It's always gone bad. It's gone bad for every civilization that's gone that way. And you know them. Where are the Romans? Gone. Where are the Medes? Gone. Where are the Persians? Gone. Where are the Greeks? Gone. Europe in decline. Soviet socialism, which led to communism, didn't work. Amen? God's not for sin. Period. And I believe we have a society that's heading in the same direction. I don't want to belabor this point, but I do want to show you something. If you go to Romans chapter 1, if you pick up in verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so Paul sets it up very clearly. He says, look, here's the deal. You want to be saved, you need to know Jesus. But he then goes on to remind us of what the world looks like without God. For since the creation, verse 20 says, of the world, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen and understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead, so that we are without excuse. That's pretty plain, pretty pretty simple. God says all you need to do is look at creation. You can tell that I'm here, that I'm real. He goes on further to say in verse 22, but mankind didn't want to do that. They, they became foolish in their heart, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. We worship animals. You watch television. How many PETA ads do you see? We care more about lost puppies than we do lost people. Now, again, I like dogs. I love dogs. i got two of them. But do I love them more than the least of any human being on this earth? Absolutely not. And are people the same as puppies? Absolutely not. Did Christ die for dogs? Absolutely not. Does he love animals? You better believe he does, but not the same way he loves you. And so people begin to worship things that aren't supposed to be worshipped. I love redwood trees. Don't worship redwood trees. I love the Sierras. Don't worship the mountains. There are no tree spirits. Your grass does not cry when you mow it. 
And he goes on to say, And therefore God gave them over to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. You wonder why we have a sex-obsessed society to where you can't sell a burger or a cheese wheel or whatever without there being somebody scantily clad professing that if you just do this, you'll have you know women falling all over you if you're a guy, or ladies, you'll find your husband by which car he drives. You know why that is? Your Bible says so in the last days. That's how it's going to be. Notice what it goes on to say. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Why do you suppose so many people are wandering around the earth believing that we came from monkeys? Because it's convenient to the world system of the enemy. Because human life shouldn't have any value. If you have a child and you don't want it, kill it. Just murder it. After all, you're the most important thing on earth. It's not God's view, folks. You're going to meet that baby in heaven. You see, God values human life. But as we'll see our story unfolds, and in the last days people will not value human life, and for this reason, it says in verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. Women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. That's very clear. It's talking about lesbianism. Likewise, men leaving the natural use of the woman, pretty plain, pretty simple, burned in their lust one for another, men with men committing that which is shameful. That's what was going on in Sodom. So for somebody to say that God's okay with it, God's not okay with it. He is not okay with homosexuality. It isn't an alternative lifestyle. It is a debauched lifestyle that leads unto death. And for us to be debating whether God is right or we are right puts us in the same place as they were in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Now, I just got really unpopular because that's about as politically incorrect as one can be in our day and time. And in fact, it may get me thrown in jail here in the not too distant future. But I'm going to believe God. Jesus made it clear it was not good what happened in the days of Lot. And it should, should not be celebrated. Nor should we be changing the definition of marriage so it can be whatever we want it to be. God's not okay with it. And he punished an entire civilization for it. So he's going to pull the church out. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, verse 33 says back in Luke 17. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. And I tell you that in that night there will be two men in one bed and one will be taken and another left. Two women will be grinding together at the mill. One taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One taken, the other left. Notice that they're taken. That word is very important because it means to be taken away by force. Not killed, removed. He's saying, look, I'm going to come and take my people. One day I'm going to have enough of this junk that's going on on the earth. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God when that happens. He's going to come and get his church one day. He's going to peer through those clouds, sound that trumpet, and we are gone. Period. He speaks of daylight in one part of the world, daytime in the other part of the world, people in different occupations, and he knows exactly those who are his. And he is going to take those who are his. And you don't get to change your mind once that's happened. When you think about those things, there, there is a church that's still going to be around. And they're the church that preached the other Jesus. The one who doesn't care about sin. The one who is approves of everything and every lifestyle. I fear for those people. 
And I fear for the pastors who teach that nonsense. Because my Bible calls them false prophets. He says that they're apostate. That they don't believe in the real Christ. That's not a good place to be. You do not want to be on the wrong side of history on that one. I can tell you that for sure. The result ultimately will be global. Notice what he says next. Church is gone. Church is out. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And so he said to them, Wherever the body is, there will be eagles gathered together. He's saying, Look, the end result of all this, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to perish in their sin. You don't want to be around for that. And so they get it. He turns, as we close this morning, to a final time in human history. Because once the church is snatched out of here, it's not going to be good. And then he spoke a parable to them that two men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, and there was a judge in that city who did not fear God nor regard man who did not fear God nor regard man. In other words, there was no fear of God, and people really didn't matter. Sound like any country you live in? Don't fear God. Really don't care about people either. Just use people for whatever you can get out of them. And now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me and from my adversary. That word translated adversary is found only two places in the Bible. It always means the enemy, Satan. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest she continually come and weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge hath said. Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears along with them? And I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. God's missing nothing about what's going on in our world right now, folks. Every last aborted baby, every last murdered innocent person, every last starving child in Africa, every last inequity on this planet, God groans over. And one day he's going to say, that's it. I'm done. Had enough. That last person, and he knows who it is, is going to say yes to Jesus. And then the trumpet's going to sound, and we're out of here. And then what awaits mankind is the righteous king of heaven coming back to judge this earth. He will avenge them speedily. And nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You see what the Lord Jesus himself is saying. Look, I've never approved, never approved of the sin. I've never approved of the debauchery. I have never approved of the abuse of the innocent. I have never approved of the rotten, despicable things that we can think of as human beings. God has never approved of those things. And he's not approving of them now. And he says, one day, I'm going to be done. And so this poor widow was asking the question, won't anyone avenge me? And God answers the question. Jesus says, yes, I will. I'll take care of it. I'll square it away. When you realize what Jesus is saying here, you have to ask yourself the question, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in you? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Without him, you're lost. There are saints and there are ain'ts. There are people who know Jesus and people who don't. It's the only two types of people there are on this earth. We come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes and flavors and creeds and colors. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus said, One day, 
I'm going to be done with the age of grace. Where will you stand in that day? What side will you be on? That's the question we all have to answer. And that's not me asking it. That's Jesus asking it. Will I find faith on the earth? If the Lord were to return today, I ask you a simple question. Would you be for him or against him? Will you have believed in your heart? Because if you haven't, then you ought to be very afraid. If you have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to be very busy. And you can look forward to that day with joy and anticipation. But you have to be very busy. Because I don't know how much longer he's going to wait. Am I preaching? Yes, I'm preaching this morning. Jesus preached. I'm preaching. Jesus said he's not waiting forever. I'm coming back. I pray that you're ready. And if you're not, today's a really good day to say yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'd be honored to pray with you. So after service, if you don't know him, there's no more important decision you'll make today than that. Knowing Christ. Because on that, all eternity hinges. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to pray this morning very specifically for anybody who is here that has never confessed you as Lord, as Savior. And it's not to manipulate. It's not to cajole. It's not to unduly put upon. But it is to say that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of it is death. There is a way that's popular and politically correct, but it's wrong. And there is a way that leads into life and godliness. And that comes from knowing you. You were very specific. You said, unless a man be born again, he'll not see the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom is in our hearts, and it awaits us in eternity. And pray, Lord, that there would just be an absolute conviction of your Holy Spirit of what needs to be done to make that sure and certain. We look forward to that day when you peek your head through the clouds and come for your church. May we be found ready. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.